Saul and Pilar Cruz are a married couple um, who founded Armonia Ministries in Mexico City. And they launched their ministry by planting a church near the edge, on the edge of a, a huge a city garbage dump. Of course, the location had brought some challenges, but the, maybe one of the biggest challenges was Saul just didn't seem to be able to connect with his people. Although he was a gifted strategist and thinker, he often appeared aloof and distant to them. By his own admission, he was unwilling to plunge into the pain and, 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 and the poverty of his people. But all that changed. All that changed one Sunday morning when someone burst into their worship service with the frantic news that the local sewage system had burst and was flooding the streets outside the church. As the sewage continued to gush, the street was on the verge of collapse and, and dozens of nearby houses were in danger. And to make matters worse, the city wouldn't respond for at least three days. Saul and a local engineer organized the onlookers and church members to stop traffic and to make some sandbags. And after working frantically for nearly 15 hours, they, be, they finally stopped the flow of the sewage. It was cold. It was drizzling. They were covered with muck and sewage. And Paul, Saul and his church members emerged from the pit and, and walked back to the church to clean up and get something to eat. As they gathered together, Saul began to cry. He says, I'm sorry, but I, I need to pray. I need to thank God because he just saved us. He saved you and he saved me. Can we pray together? And they held hands and they knelt and they thanked their God. And by the time they had finished praying, Saul had earned their trust. He became their leader and their friend. Later on, he would comment about the situation. People need to see that you're for real, that you really care for them, that you're even ready to put your life on the edge for them. People need to know that you'll be there for them. Today, we're continuing our sermon series from the book of Hebrews entitled, It's All About Jesus. And you know, sometimes in our lives, when we look around at the sewage, the, the muck and the grime of our lives and of our world, and we, we begin to sometimes think that maybe God should get a little bit more involved, that he's too distant, that he seems to be aloof, that perhaps he's uncaring, that he's not there for us. Well, this passage this morning tells us that God is for real, that God is really care, caring for us, and that he's put his life on the edge for us, and that he will be there for us. Now, if you were here with us last week, you'll remember that the overall theme of Hebrews as we kicked off this sermon series is the total sufficiency of Jesus Christ for all things and the total supremacy and superiority of Jesus Christ over all things and in all things. And this theme is stated stated right up front in the first few verses of Hebrews, the letter to Hebrews, chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things. And through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And so he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. And then the writer of Hebrew goes on to compare Jesus to angels and uses Old Testament uh, verses to demonstrate that though angels are incredible, powerful, beings, that Jesus is much, much more superior, that he is the creator and sustainer of all things, and that he is, in fact, the Son of God and one with God the Father. And so after establishing the superiority of Jesus here in chapters 1 and the first part of chapter 2, the author takes a strange 
twist in verse 9 of chapter 2. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels. So Christ, who was declared superior to the angels in chapter 1, now in chapter 2 was placed beneath the angels. And the Son of God becomes one of us. It's what we call the, the Incarnation. You know, the doctrine and teaching of the Incarnation um, has for centuries taught that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, became God in the flesh and walked this earth. And in the, incarn in the Incarnation, we believe that Jesus was both fully God and he was also fully human. It was a radical idea then, and it's a, a radical idea today. So let's dig in and talk about the whys of the Incarnation and look at the, the what's and the how's a little bit at the end and the implications of, of this doctrine for us as we live out our faith in the 21st century. Let's pray first, though. Father, we ask for your spirit and your word to intersect in our lives, to bring to truth, to your truth to bear uh, in our hearts and minds, our actions, our words and deeds. We thank you, Father, for your word. We pray now that um, your spirit would go before my words uh, and that your truth be, would be imparted to each one of us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the 1980s and early 1990s, there was a political tidal wave that swept across Eastern Europe. One after another, Eastern Bloc communist countries fell, either swiftly to democratic rule, or they began a, a slow and gradual peaceful transition to capitalism and democracy. One country which stood out in the news was Poland, primarily because of one man, Lech Walesa. Lech Walesa was an electrician and a union activist, and he created a movement that was called Solidarity. Solidarity was a movement that was a catalyst in dismantling communism and corruption in Poland, and it was also a catalyst and key to ushering in a new era of freedom. Verse 11 tells us that the first why of the Incarnation is that Jesus came to establish solidarity, to establish a relationship uh, with us. Verse 11, both the one, referring to Jesus, the one, both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy, speaking of Christians, are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. You know, Christianity is the only religion that says God became one of us. That God makes brothers and sisters, makes us family. That Jesus makes us holy, and then he calls us family. He's not ashamed of us, it says. When we put our faith in Christ, we're part of the family. We're not outcasts. We're not ostracized. We're not black sheep. And that's the first why of the Incarnation. Get this to work there. Jesus came to earth as one of us because Jesus, because God wants to grow and expand his family. Another way of putting it is Jesus came to earth to save as many as possible, to bring as many as possible into a right relationship with the Father and bring them into the family. We see that reference in verses 10, 13, and 16. And bringing many sons and children to glory, verse 10, verse 13. And again he says, here I am and the children God has given me. And then verse 16, for surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. In other words, the human race. The second why of the incarnation is expressed in verses 14 through 15. Since the children, human beings, have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. You know, part of uh, human nature is a fear of death. It's a natural reaction. Woody Allen sums up humanity's uneasiness with death by saying this. 
It's not that I'm afraid to die. I just don't want to be there when it happens. That probably reflects the way a lot of us feel about it. In the incarnation, Jesus deals with that fear of death by becoming one of us, by taking on death and defeating death at the cross and at the empty tomb. And because of that, we no longer have to fear death. Carolyn Ahrens, a writer, tells this story. She says, as a kid, I loved mission Sundays. You know, the Sundays when missionaries on furlough would bring special reports in place of the sermon. She said, there was one visit I've never forgotten. The missionaries were a married couple stationed in what appeared to be a particularly steamy jungle. I'm sure they gave a full report on churches planted, on commitments made, or translations of the Bible begun. I don't remember much of that. What has always stayed with me is the story they shared about a snake. One day they told us an enormous snake, much longer than the man, slithered through, its, through their door and into the kitchen of their home. Terrified, they ran outside and searched frantically for a local who would know what to do. A machete-wielding laborer came to the rescue, calmly walked into the kitchen, and decapitated the snake with one clean chop. The neighbor reemerged triumphant and assured the missionaries that the reptile had been defeated. But there was one caveat. It was going to take a while for the snake to realize that it was dead. You see, a snake's neurology and blood flow are such that it can take considerable time for it to stop moving even after decapitation. And so for the next several hours, the missionaries were forced to wait outside while the snake thrashed about, smashing furniture, breaking windows, wreaking havoc until its body finally understood that it no longer had a head. Outside their, their, their house, sweating in the heat, the missionaries felt frustrated and a little sickened by the damage that they could hear the, the snake's body committing. But at some point in their waiting, they had an epiphany. Aaron's writes, I leaned in with the rest of the congregation, queasy and fascinated. Do you see it? Asked the husband. Satan is a lot like that big old snake. He's already been defeated. He just doesn't know it yet. In the meantime, he's going to do some damage in our lives and in our world. But never, ever forget that he's a goner. Aaron finishes her story when she says, the story still haunts me because I have come to believe it is an accurate picture of the universe. We are in the thrashing season, a, 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 a time characterized by a pervasive capacity to do violence to each other and ourselves. And the temptation, when we see the, the wreckage in our world, is to despair. We have to remember, though, that it won't last forever. Jesus has already crushed the serpent's head. The second why of the incarnation is that Jesus came to earth as one of us to defeat and destroy Satan, and to set us free from the fear of dying. The third why of the Incarnation is found in verse 10. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. The author of our salvation, of course, is Jesus Christ. We know that. He's the one who conceives uh, the faith in us. He composes it. He brings it to life in our lives. And Jesus in the Incarnation identifies completely with the human experience and identifies with our suffering and the suffering that happens in our world. And through that suffering, it tells us that Jesus is made perfect. The point of clarification, the Greek word for perfect here means to make something or someone complete. Jesus was already perfect because he is, of course, the Son of God. But his mission is made complete, is completed, 
when he suffers and dies on the cross for our sins. One of my favorite uh, authors is Timothy Keller. He's the pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in downtown Manhattan, New York City. And he writes about this issue. He says, Christianity does not so much offer solutions to the problems of suffering, but rather provides a promise of a God who is completely present with us in suffering. Only Christians believe in a God who says, Here I am alongside you. I've experienced the same suffering you have. I know what it is like. No other religion even begins to offer that assurance. Keller goes on to say, After the World Trade Center tragedy, between 600 and 800 new people began to attend Redeemer. And the sudden influx of people posed this question. What does your God have to say to me? What does your God have to offer me at such a time like this? Keller writes, I preached. Christianity is the only faith that tells you God lost a child in an act of violent injustice. Christianity is the only religion that tells you, therefore, God suffered as you have suffered. The third why of the incarnation is that Jesus came to earth and became one of us to identify with our suffering by going through suffering himself. Finally, the fourth why of the incarnation is found in verses 17 through 18. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and, and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people, because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. In the incarnation, Jesus becomes one of us so that he can understand the human condition, including temptations and struggles, and help us when we face them. Now, as a history major, I'm a history buff, and I'm not sure who said it, but the quote has been that those who do not learn from history are destined to repeat it. And I think we can draw lessons from the early church in regard to this. As I said at the beginning, the incarnation is a radical idea for people to grasp. And in the early church, several heresies, heresies are false teachings, developed surrounding the incarnation. Some people just could not accept Jesus' full humanity. Most had no problem with him being fully God, but they couldn't grasp the idea of, of God being fully human. For example, one of the heresies is something called docetism. It's the idea that Jesus just seemed to be human, sort of pretending to be one of us, but not really. And one of the reasons for this docetism was the influence of something called Gnosticism, a, a philosophy in the Greek world that all physical matter, including the physical human body, was evil, and that only the non-physical, the, the soul or the spirit, was good. Therefore, they would believe that God never would have stooped so low as to put on an evil, corrupt human body. They said Jesus was God, but that he was just pretending, that it was an illusion, that he just made it appear that, 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 that he was human. Another heresy is one called Apollinarianism. And it said that, yes, Jesus was God, and yes, Jesus had a real physical body, but they didn't have a normal human mind and spirit. That is, he wasn't fully human, closer than a docetist would believe, but not fully human. Jesus, an Apollinarianist would have said, had God's mind and God's spirit, but not a human mind or human spirit. So what are the implications for us in this view? What are the problems? Well, in this view, that would mean that Jesus would like us physically. He could be hurt. He could be hungry. He could be tired. He could be sad. 
thirsty, he could die. But if he had God's mind and spirit, and not a human mind or spirit, he could not truly be tempted, or truly scared, or worried, or lonely, or angry, or confused. If that was the case, he could not understand what it meant to be a human being. But the biblical view of the incarnation is that Jesus was fully God, and, and he was fully human. And he did experience what it meant to be scared, worried, lonely, angry, and tempted. You know, we must be clear on our thinking regarding this. Because a clear understanding helps us understand the extent to which God went to make us a part of his family. To, to win our redemption. God became an insider and transformed human experience from within. In a famous answer to, to the heresies in the 4th century, Gregory of Nazianzus stated, What has not been assumed cannot be restored. In other words... What has not been taken on and identified by Jesus Christ in the, in the incarnation cannot be redeemed. So what that means for us is that for God's plan of redemption to work, for God to be able to save us through Jesus Christ, Jesus had to take on human existence entirely. So if Jesus had not assumed and taken on the struggle to, to resist temptation and the loneliness and pain of rejection and the pain of betrayal by a friend, the rejection by family members, the temptation to lust after another person, the frustration we feel when we are misunderstood, the vulnerability of human existence and weakness we feel, if Jesus had not taken on those things and much, much more, then God could not truly work in our lives to redeem and restore the junk and the sewage in us and in our world. And the ultimate issue that we face, of course, is the area that Jesus Christ, if he were truly to be human, had to face as well, was death. And because God is eternal and cannot die, Jesus had to become fully human in order to die for us. Jesus knows what it's like to be one of us, and yet the scripture tells us that he did not sin. And what that means is that, is that not only does he know what it's like to be one of us in our struggles and temptations, but it means that because of his perfect life and victory over the temptation of sin, that he can give us the power to resist temptation and overcome through our struggles. Athanasius was another early church theologian, and he got it right when he summed it up when he said this about Jesus. <laughs> he said, Jesus became like us so that we might become like him. And that's the amazing implication of the incarnation. Jesus became one of us so that we could become like him, not God-like, but so that we could share eternity with him so we could share in his righteousness and his holiness so we could be saved and become his brothers his sisters his family and that's the fourth why of the incarnation jesus becomes one of us so that he can understand our temptations and struggles and help us when we when we face them because of the incarnation we can no longer say nobody understands Nobody understands how lonely I am, how afraid I am. Jesus does. Nobody understands how weak I feel, how powerless I am. Jesus does. Nobody understands the anger and the frustration. Jesus does. Nobody understands the sting of rejection. Jesus does. Nobody understands the pressure I feel from my parents or the worry I have about my children. Jesus does. 
Nobody understands the pain of divorce and my broken family. Jesus does. Nobody understands the depth of my grief. Nobody understands how ugly I feel. Jesus does. Nobody understands how hard I'm trying to change, but I just can't seem to do it. Jesus does. Nobody understands how afraid I am of dying. Jesus does. In the incarnation, Jesus totally identifies with us in our human experience, our frailties, our struggles, our temptation. Therefore, he's completely able to understand. Because the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the supreme and superior one, the creator of everything and sustainer of all things, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, chose to become one of us. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you today and we, we thank you for the truth of your word. And we thank you that we, we know that Jesus Christ came to earth. He chose to become one of us. Fully God, but fully human. We thank you that because he is fully God, that he is completely able to, to save us, to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. We thank you as well because he is fully human, that he understands and, and he can help us to overcome. Lord, we thank you for the gift of Jesus. God with us, Emmanuel, we thank you that he has become one of us so that we could become like him. We ask this in Jesus' name.